Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the CSF Curriculum Podcast. Uh, It's CJ. Brian could not be with us this week, so I'm stepping in to facilitate instead. This week, we are reading the the last part of our curriculum uh, from Revelation, the end of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, pieces of each. And we have the lovely Dylan Matthews with us today. Hello, Dylan. Hey, thanks for calling me lovely. Well, of course. Um, and Dylan, we're just going to go ahead and jump right in here. Revelation is probably an infamous book in Scripture. It's being it's the last book, so kind of hard to miss it. But uh, why don't you start to tell us a little bit about the the background of Revelation, uh, where it is situated in, in kind of the historical timeline, so we can get a sense of what's going on as this document is being written. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Revelation of John, not Revelations, it's Revelation. Uh, you know, so if you have a friend in your group who says the book of revelations, you can sock them in the arm and say, Hey, dummy, it's revelation. Yeah, and this is also a criticism for those people who like to call Kroger Kroger's. Yeah, absolutely. You got to read it carefully here. That's right. Yeah. You Philistines who call Kroger's a plural name, get out of here. Uh, no, it's the book of revelation and, uh, it's a writing, um, from the late first century by, John, one of the original disciples, the original 12 that followed Jesus. And um, he's writing to a group of churches uh, and he's writing to um, help them through tough times. They're experiencing persecution and some of them are responding in different ways. So to some churches, he's encouraging them for their faithfulness in the midst of suffering and struggle. And to some of them, he's saying, hey, strengthen yourselves uh, against persecution, even to one of the churches infamously, uh, you know, the, the pro- prophecy says, you're neither hot nor cold. So I spit you out. You're lukewarm. And so it's this book that challenges, challenges us to not be lukewarm in the face of a culture that, um, challenges our faith and challenges our practice and actually invites us to remain rooted in God in, in spite of the struggle of being a faithful Christian in a culture that doesn't accept it. Yeah, and this isn't like a metaphorical suffering either, right? I mean, there's the stories of the the Christians in Rome that Nero would dip into boiling oil while still alive and then light them on fire to light the streets at night. I think John himself is kind of an an apocryphal story. I don't don't know whether it's 100% true or false, but tradition passes down that he himself was dipped into a, a, they tried to execute him by by putting him in a a vat of boiling water, but it didn't actually kill him. So they exiled him to, to Patmos instead, which I think is where he wrote, he wrote this letter. So he's responding to a very real suffering, not just this kind of metaphorical, oh, we're going through hard times, right? Uh, my roommate's not being nice to me. No, like, I mean, people are, are being murdered and martyred for the faith. Yeah, absolutely. And you you mentioned Patmos, and that's such an important part of this letter, is that uh, what's going on in John's life as he's writing this is he is exiled on this island called Patmos uh, in the Mediterranean, and he has a vision um, of kind of I mean, really, it's he sees something, he meets an angel, and the angel says, let me show you this thing, and he gets taken on this wild ride with all these allegorical symbols of Old Testament literature and some New Testament iterations of Old Testament sim, sim, uh, symbolism, and so it's this really funky book with some weird writings that if you were just to kind of stamp the word, take it you know, literally onto this book, you would run into some problems like, wait, that thing has six eyes, How do, that doesn't exist, how do I take that literally? 
we'll, we'll say a little more about this. What what kind of genre is it? Because uh, we know that the Bible is a book made up of various kinds of genres. We have histories, we have poetry, we have um, you know mythologies, and and then we have this this kind of book as well. What or this genre? What's this genre called? Yeah. So actually, the word revelation uh, in the Greek is apocalypsis. Uh, and it's where we actually get the word apocalypse or apocalyptic. And so the genre of writing is an apocalyptic writing, which is this actually uniquely Hebraic style of writing where it combines kind of a vision with poetic imagery. And so it's, you're using imagery to portray a deep, profound, sometimes challenging truth about reality. And so when you see something like the beast, the beast doesn't necessarily mean a literal beast on four legs, hairy, and he's gross, mm-hmm. and he's got, you know, just gross stuff dripping out of his mouth, and he's heaving on Trent. I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just not that. It's not what, that's not what he's saying, but he's actually using this sometimes grotesque Im- imagery, but sometimes challenging imagery, sometimes beautiful imagery mm-hmm. to actually speak about reality in a way that maybe speaks more to our souls than just our intellectual information mm-hmm. transfer kind of minds. And it's really beautiful. Yeah. So even in our passage today, we're going to see a lot of symbols and imagery uh, in the new heavens and new new earth. They're going to be described in this beautiful, florid way. Um, and I guess, you know, we it this tells us how we should and shouldn't read it, that maybe we shouldn't get too focused on the details of the imagery, but instead maybe what the imagery is trying to to tell us in the in the the pictures, what they actually reveal to us about truths, about ourselves, about God. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes when we say we're not taking something literally, that can actually come off as if we're challenging the seriousness of how we should right. take it or the, even the authority. Right. And I think that authority can be a dirty word these days, but actually we really long for something to speak about who we yeah. are and what we're doing and why we should do it. And so really the authority that is still something that's there in this book, we just don't look at the poetic imagery and say, oh, this literally means this, but we actually still take it seriously and say, this is saying something about reality yeah, and about so who a, we are. It's an invitation to look deeper, not to ignore what's being said or as if what's being said is irrelevant or untrue. It's not to say that. It's to, to invite us into a, a, a reading which tells us more about what uh, is going on than just what seems to be said on the page. So if anything, I think it's us taking it seriously at even a, a second level here. Well, hey, why don't you tell us just real quick um, before we jump into the actual verses themselves, what is happening in Revelation so that we get to the end here, chapter 21, 21 and 22, what's kind of happened up to this moment? I know you've talked a little bit about this, but tell us a little bit more. Yeah. So what's going on in the book is Paul's writing to these churches and then he kind of writes about the evil that we're seeing in the world and actually the work that Christ is going to do to heal the world finally, purge it of evil. And so where we land in the book is we're at the end and it's right after Christ has returned. So in the Christian faith, we really do believe in the second coming of Christ. We do believe in a bodily resurrection. And so we see the resurrected Christ come and he's finally purged the world of evil. And now he's transitioning into what will this world look like on the other side of death, on the other side of evil. And he's actually not transitioning to what we would think of when we think of heaven. He's thinking of this thing that he's that he's talking about called the new heaven and the new earth. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you see this transition, he's not making a transition from, look, the earth will be removed and suddenly will be these spiritual beings, but he's actually transitioning into this is what eternal life will look like in the end. And so it's a really cool transition from Christ healing the world to life with Christ. 
Great. Okay. Well, I think we can go ahead and start, you know, you, you've already started talking about it a little bit. We can go ahead and start jumping into to some of the themes from uh, our scripture today. The scriptures um, for this week are um, Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and then also paired with Revelation uh, 21, the last few verses of the chapter through the first um, seven or eight verses of the next chapter. So why don't we just go ahead and start with that that first section, the first um, few verses of Revelation 21 and talk about some of the themes there. Yeah, so you see in uh, Revelation 21, the first few verses, you see um, some beautiful things come to the fore about what the good life looks like, what uh, life um, in the new heaven and the new earth looks like. Uh, and you see that the this with God theme that we've been talking about all semester long is finally lived out in the fullness and the beauty of what it's intended for. And so the scripture says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And that means men and women, humanity, Uh, and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will be their God. And so it's this beautiful reality that in the new heaven, the new earth, the life with God that we long for, that we can live into now will be in its fullness and its full fruitfulness uh, in, in the end of time with God. Yeah, which is not to say that we can't live with God now. And I think that's the point you're making. I'm actually seeing this this really interesting line where um, it seems to be God the Father saying, it, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega at the beginning and the end, um, where he says, it is done. And it reminds me of when Christ on the cross says, it is done. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that, you know, in chapter 21, we're seeing kind of that final consummation of being with God that's promised on the cross and that Christ died and sends his spirit. And in, in a real sense, we're with God right now. Um, but this is kind of that already not yet tension that we live in, that we've talked about uh, in a few weeks before, where Christ has already died. It is already finished. But at the same time, it's not yet finished finished. It won't be finished until we see in in 21 here where the father declares it's finished. And that, that seed of being with God, which we can live into now is fully consummated. And this is the continuation of that story, fully consummated in the end. Absolutely. Yeah. And you even see in uh, verse uh, four, right after that sort of with God theme is hit, it even says that we will, we will be with God, but we'll be uh, free from death, that there'll be no, no more Uh, mourning, no more crying, no more pain. I mean, really we'll have the with God life, but without all of the the sin and death that we experience in this this part of life right now. And so the thing that we long for, the the thing that we just naturally, we rage against death, we weep against death, we weep against sin, that'll be gone and we'll actually experience the fullness, the spiritual fulfillment of life with God free from the darkness that we can experience in this part of life. Yeah. The, the first part of our, our curriculum for this week, that's what stuck out to me the most, the, the hope that comes from this first half here. Um, remembering, and this is why we talked about that historical context, that Christians are literally being murdered, that this isn't some metaphorical suffering they're going through, but in the midst of watching their loved ones die, in the midst of being persecuted themselves, um, John writes to us about suffering and hope. And I think that there's this really hopeful message in here. He's assuring us that the story is going to turn out okay, but he does it in a unique way. What stuck out to me is that when he says, you know, I'm going to, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. I think in a real way, what he's doing, uh, and I think this is even unique to kind of the Christian story is saying there is real 
evil and real suffering. And that what makes this hope instead of just a kind of blind optimism is that um, God doesn't want this stuff. He doesn't want the suffering. He doesn't want the mourning, the crying. God's original design did not include suffering. It did not include death. Um, And that these things actively are God's enemies. They work against him. And at the end of the story, God's not just going to be like, hey, look at everything that happened and it's all great and it all worked perfectly. It's exactly what I wanted and everything's going to be perfect. And all the tears were part of my plan and all the mourning was exactly what I wanted. But no, God said, these things are aberrations and eventually I will destroy them. Um, I'm reminded from, you know, this last week, um, we heard Rachel uh, Denhollander come and and talk to to Synergy about the ordeals that she went through with Larry Nasser and the uh, the the sex abuse that went on with with him and the uh, the Olympic gymnasts. Um, and there was a line that stuck out to me when she was talking about um, how she's come through all this, and and she talked about um, that people have come up to her and said, you know, just aren't you really thankful that you went through all of this because of what came out of it? And she said, no, like of course not. Like, this isn't a good thing. Do I wish I went through that? No, of course not. There is nothing good. There's nothing positive about being abused as a child by an older man. There's nothing good about that. Am I happy and am I glad that God can take something broken and turn it into something beautiful? Yeah, but that doesn't mean that this evil and this suffering somehow played a part into the divine story. Um, and then I'm also reminded of, I'm going to read you a, a lengthy section from David Bentley Hart. Is that okay, Dylan? Uh, yeah, please. Okay, wonderful. He, he's a wordsmith like, like few others. So he ends one of my favorite essays by him called Tsunami and Theodicy, written after um, the tsunamis in, in the mid 2000s killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And people were wondering, you know, what, what was God's plan in all this? Was, you know, was Jesus riding the wave of the tsunami? Is this fit into the ultimate story? Is this the mechanism God uses to redeem the world? And he says, of course not. Of course not. And he, he says this to close, painting what I think is the, the beautiful picture of the end of, um, of the cosmos, God's original plan. Um, and, th- and this is what he says. And as for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. For it has set us free from optimism and has taught us hope instead. We can rejoice that we are saved not through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but by grace. That God will not unite all of history's many strands into one great synthesis, but will judge much of history false and damnable. He will not simply reveal the sublime logic of fallen nature, but will strike off the fetters in which creation languishes. And that rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for the building of his kingdom, he will instead raise her up and wipe away all tears from her eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain. For the former things will have passed away. And he that sits upon the throne will say, behold, I'm making all things new. Man, that's so good. And I I think that's so important because, you know, we we experience suffering now. And and I think... I have to be honest, probably as a, a Western, as an American, I think I experience uh, a pretty minimal amount of yeah. suffering. I mean, my suffering is like, shoot, I'm out of uh, like LaCroix or something. Yeah, you know, I've got a hangnail. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, but I think we still experience some some actually legitimate suffering, even if yeah. it, um, in the history of the world, in the world right now is minimal. I think we still experience suffering and we still need hope. And so I think it is so hopeful and it's such an anchor in the midst of suffering to look to the plan of God and say, this evil is not what God has for me. 
this evil is not the plan of God. This evil will be gone. It will be wiped away. The slate will be made clean. The world will be made clean again. And the thing that will live on is the goodness and the beauty and the truth of life with God. And so in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of other people's darkness, we can hope for the healing of the world, um, the restoration of the world. And so that's what this passage is getting at, is saying, in the midst of your suffering, let this be your hope. Let this be your anchor. Um, But I also think it can be a hope for our false hopes. Mm. You know, I think I I probably struggle more with things that offer me false hope than things that actually cause suffering in my life. And so, you know, I just feel like I always dunk on Instagram. And to anyone who's listening, I love Instagram probably too much. I think it's so interesting. I can follow people who I think are interesting and, you know, who's reading this book? Who's reading this book? And a lot of my Amazon wish list is people I follow on Instagram and finding out what books they read. But I dunk on it because I think I experience something from it that sometimes can be hurtful to my soul. And so one of the things is I actually can experience different versions of what the good life might be Mm -hmm. from what I see maybe advertised or even advocated for on Instagram, on any social media, really. And so what this does, it helps me realize, no, actually the good life is the life with God. The good life is new heaven and new earth restored because of the sacrifice and the resurrection life of Jesus. And the good life isn't having this pair of shoes. The good life isn't going to this coffee shop. Those things can be a part of the good life, but they're not all there is. And actually those things are empty without the reality of life with God, life restored. And so for me, I feel like, yes, this can be, this passage is a a beautiful hope in the midst of suffering, Mm -hmm. but it's also a challenge to say, this is what I should hope for and not hope for the new pair of shoes, the flat white from the coffee shop. Those things are false hopes if they're empty of life with God. Great. Yeah. And I think one, one last thing that we probably need to touch on just, just for a second here is that last verse, verse eight in chapter 21 can be somewhat scary. I think, especially to a culture like ours, which struggles with, um, you know, judging others. And we're, we're a culture of tolerance though. Ironically, the only, the only thing we tolerate are the things that, uh, that don't upset us, right? We're not very tolerant of intolerance, but this idea that that God would send anyone or anything to hell can be a really stu- a real stumbling block, I think, for the culture, and it can be a stumbling block in our own faith as well. Um, so, understanding kind of what's going on here, I think, is is pretty important. Um, and I guess you know my, my two cents of it is, you know, we were talking a minute ago about you know the suffering and the the enemy and the the evil that's not a part of God's plan, not something that he wants and not something necessary to bring about the new kingdom, but something which the new kingdom must overcome and overthrow uh, in which Christ has done. And we're seeing kind of the death throes of, of Satan and, and, uh, and evil in this world, though it's not yet complete. But what he says here is that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic and the idolaters and all the liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We think, oh man, hell, that sounds like really mean. God's going to be sending a, a lot of people to hell. But I think what what I would encourage us to do is, is to look at the list and think, God, God, we're not just saying that there's a bunch of people God's wanting to send to hell, but what we're saying is all of those attributes he just listed, being cowardice, being vile, murdering, being immoral, all of these things which characterize the opposite of God, you know, hatred, love of self, all of these evils, which produce all of the horrible things that happen in the world, they are not going to be part of the new kingdom. They have to go somewhere. 
these things. And then unfortunately, there are people who devote themselves to this. There are some people who, when God holds out life and who holds out bravery and who holds out purity, say, no, I choose death. I choose cowardice and I choose idolatry and immorality. Um, And I think the reality is when these people say no to God, that they have to, something has to happen. God's not going to force them to be in his presence. He's not going to say, well, too bad. It's me. Um, you were quoting to me this, this great C.S. Lewis line. Um, was it, was it from the great divorce? It might not have been. What, what was it? Why don't you tell me? I, uh, man, honestly, when I quote C.S. Lewis, I, it's like when I quote Bible verses, I just say, it's in there somewhere. Yep. <laughs> uh, but, uh, the quote, and I'm probably paraphrasing, I'm so sorry, but essentially there are two kinds of people. Those who in the end will look to God and say, thy will be done or those who God will look to them and say, thy will be done. And it's just kind of, it, even when I say it, it feels kind of haunting because the beauty of free will and having our own agency as beings is that we can actually be transformed into people who freely desire goodness and truth and beauty. Uh, but the scary thing is that also in our, our free will and in our own agency, we can freely desire to have life with sexual immorality than life with God. And that's, that's just terrifying and scary. And I think that's even a holy, holy fear of saying, yeah. wow, that, that, that feels dangerous. But the beauty is that God doesn't want that for us. And so he's actually gone to uh, almost unbelievable ends mm-hmm. to redeem us and transform us. Uh, and so you see in the story that the reality is if we, if we in our free will choose to have life with these broken things, we will, we will find ourselves in a hellish place yeah. and not in the heavenly place that is being described and uh, imagined, uh, brought into imagery here by John. All right, great stuff. Well, how about we move on to the second half of the uh, the curriculum passage this week, the very end of chapter 21, and then those first few verses of 22. What are some things that we see there? Yeah, so in 22, you actually see this really cool imagery of things that you might have experienced if you've been reading the Bible before. So you see 22, 22 starts with the temple. Uh, the like place of God's presence for uh, the Israelite people. You see the river of life, the imagery from Ezekiel about the river of life flowing out from the temple. You see uh, the tree of life from the garden of Eden and the Genesis story. So you see all this old Testament imagery happening uh, and it's, and it's awesome and it's beautiful and it actually invites you into what God is saying through scripture. Yeah, well, why don't you tell us what these symbols mean? I mean, like you said earlier, with this genre, there's an invitation to something deeper, that the point of this passage is not so that we can just paint a pretty accurate watercolor of what heaven looks like. What is actually God inviting us into seeing that's uh, one step beyond just what we're seeing? What can we draw from this passage? What are we being taught here besides just what the streets are made of and how many trees there are going to be in the new heaven and new earth? Yeah, that's great because we could get kind of lost in the weeds if we mm-hmm. try to just figure out these individual things that will make up the physical real heaven. But really right. what actually it's saying is this is a unified story. So from garden to city, uh, it's just this beautiful way of saying we're, we're going back to the garden. We're going back to the reality of when life was uh, holy with God, holy W H O L L Y. Uh, and even holy, you know, the, just without the W, but we're going back to that reality. And so what you're seeing is John is using this imagery that comes from all of these different places in the story of Israel and the story of Jesus, which is really one unified story. And he's actually saying, we're a part of that story too. And he's, cause he's writing to the church. And so we're in the part of the story called church, 
where we are God's people lived out through God's church. And so we actually get to look at this and say, oh, I'm in the story. And actually I can have hope in the happily ever after that we see in, you know, every great story that's really based off of the one true story, the life that is given by God revealed in Jesus. I see something really strange in the end of 21 here. I'm hoping you can uh, illuminate it for me. I think there's this um, just kind of gut intuition that, you know, if we were to put into an image, how uh, we think that what happens after we die, we die and then our spirits kind of arise from our body and then we float up to the clouds into heaven. Um, But actually what we see at the end of 21 here um, is a city descending to earth. So instead of us going up, you see something coming down. Explain this to me. Yeah, because we talk about so much you know, are we going to heaven? Like, you know, once we die, do we go to heaven? That's That sometimes feels like the salvific question, you know, am I yeah. going to go to heaven or not? But really what you see in here is that, yeah, heaven comes to God's people, not God's people go to heaven. And I think what's important is we really do have a hope that when we leave this part of life, when we, when we die, uh, that there is a paradise that we go to. Mm-hmm. You see that Jesus says that to the sinner on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Mm-hmm. We do have this hope after death, but I don't think that's the ultimate end of the story. Uh, N.T. Wright, one of my favorite biblical scholars says the story of the Bible is not really that interested with life after death is actually more interested with the life after life after death. Mm-hmm. And so what you see is this is actually a way better ending than I don't know, playing harp, floating on the clouds, hanging out with angels, singing worship songs forever. I mean, if you're, I'm a worship leader, I'm supposed to say that I love that. But I think there's something more than just being this super spiritual floating around. You see a city that has culture, that has buildings, you have architecture, you have, you know, street musicians, you have all this amazing actual physical reality. And so what, what actually is happening is you're taking the story of the garden where God gives us life that we can work the earth create it, to thrive upon it. But now we have the fullness of the with God life lived out at the same time. And so it's not this sort of ethereal spiritual reality. It's actually saying we're going back to what we were made to do in the beginning, Mm -hmm. to exist and create like the creator with the creator uh, and enjoying the infinite creativity of him and saying, man, relationship with God never gets boring because he never ends. And so we just get to have this happily ever after but it's not this boring, we're done, we're finished. Okay, we've reached our destination, but it's actually a destination that never gets tiring. Yeah, so it's not just this eternity of, of doing the same thing over and over again, which really does sound boring. And in some in some ways, that sounds a lot like hell to me. It's just sitting there doing the same thing over and over and over for eternity. It's more like thinking of your favorite things that you like to do now and infusing God into those favorite things and worshiping Him through those favorite things, those things which make your soul come alive as a body and embodied uh, being. Um, those last forever and you're in a perfect loving relationship forever. It might sound boring to eat ice cream for eternity, but it doesn't sound quite as boring for me to be able to sit in a perfectly loving relationship forever and to express that in infinitely creative ways forever. Yeah, absolutely. And I even think if we were real with ourselves, sometimes I think we secretly hold this view of heaven that it's not the place that we really actually want to go. Right. Like we like the idea of it, but I think if someone said, would you rather be alive now or would you rather experience this picture of heaven? I think a lot of us would say, no, I don't, I don't want to go there. Yeah. My life feels pretty exciting now. Yeah. Like even in the midst of what kind of problems I have, I really would still rather have this existence than that existence. And I think I would want to challenge myself and challenge others and say, maybe you have a, 
incorrect view of what heaven is. Maybe it's not that heaven isn't as desirable, but actually that you have an incorrect picture that makes it seem not desirable. Mm -hmm. And so actually when you look at this picture of life with God restored perfectly, but still having the ability to be a human being Mm -hmm. who creates and has families and you experience connection with others, uh, that, that, is way more beautiful to me than being an angel floating on a cloud. Yeah, of course. And that, that just doesn't seem as boring. And it seems actually like the life that I want. And I, I, I think I could say this, you know, maybe not wholeheartedly. I think I'm being transformed into this, but that's the life I would want to live forever. And if I left this life for that, I would want that. Awesome. Well, as we wrap up here, are there any other things from just kind of this, this week as a whole, any takeaways or any final thoughts that you want to give to the listeners that can help them translate this story into um, some meaningful life work uh, as they go forward in the groups? Here's my one takeaway. I just want to recommend a book. <laughs> it's, a, it's not an expensive book and it's not a long book, but it's, I think it's a really helpful book for understanding what's going on. And it's called Garden City by one of my favorite pastors, John Mark Comer. I think I talked about Bridgetown in the other podcast, so I'm really fanboying hard between these two two podcasts that we've done. But uh, it's this just this really helpful book that talks about what it means to be a human. How do we work? How do we rest? What does it actually look, look like to live the good life? So if you got 10 bucks or you got people in your group who have a lot of questions, but maybe you need like an easy answer for those questions, that's a great book to check out. I think it's worth your time. Easy read. All right. Well, Dylan, thank you so much for joining me, the guest host for the the podcast. I'm, I'm very confident in saying this is the best podcast in the curriculum series we've had so far based just on the personalities present, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. Did, I think you did a great job hosting. Oh, thank you. Dylan. You did a lovely job. Oh, thank you, sir. Well, hopefully this has been very helpful to you all and will be helpful as you start to lead your groups between this, the curriculum, and just kind of what the spirit is opening up in your, your eyes and your head and your heart as you're reading through it. Hopefully that you can read this passage passage, it can shape your imagination, shape your hopes, and you can communicate that to your students in a way which shows them um, what the true end of their lives is meant to be. So I hope uh, that you have a great uh, week this week in your curriculum. If you have any questions, go find a staff member um, or come talk to somebody on the curriculum team. We'd be happy to talk you through it. But otherwise, praying for you. We hope that you, uh, you have a God-honoring group this week. All right. See you.